How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in Context. Understand God's word and apply it to your life. In Context. Today, Colossians 1, 20 and 29, which I call Paul's Great Commission. To set this up, though, I want to look at a little bit more of the passage. But let me begin with a quotation from a book called Visions of Grandeur by Ralph Matson. I read this, I think it came out in the 80s, memory fails. But it, it's one of those paragraphs that just haunted me and haunts me yet today. If we add up all the grand moments of our lives, most of us end up with a very small pile of memories. But they are indeed golden. In contrast, a similar collection of all our mundane times yields a ponderous heap. It's clear that the bulk of our lives' efforts are consumed by routine tasks and ordinary occasions. All of us have some spectacular moments. Uh, I can still remember when I had my first double-digit basketball score. There are certain things that stand out in your mind, and you remember those. Maybe it was an award. Maybe it was an achievement. Maybe it was walking the aisle, uh, saying, I do to your husband and your wife. Maybe it was the first baby. Maybe it was some award you won, a sales record you met, a personal record achievement athletically. There are some high points. The the problem I have with the quote is, Matson, and I don't think he means this, uh, meant this, but it almost sounds like the routine task and ordinary occasions aren't important. And I would argue it's the routine task and ordinary occasions that prepare us for such a time. You don't walk on stage and sing a song for the first time and win a Grammy. You've been singing since you were a child or playing since you were a child, etc. These are skills that are developed. But nevertheless, when you think about your life, uh, there's just a handful of those moments. I don't know if corporations still do it, but they used to give you a gold watch when you retired. And you look at all your accumulations and you get a little box and a little, you know, couple hundred dollar, maybe several, maybe a thousand dollar gold watch. My, I have my father's gold watch when he retired from American Stellar Corporation. It, it's broken. Uh, but uh, you get this token when you finish. If you lived in the Beltway or if you worked in the military, uh, they have all kinds of ways to give you these benchmarks. They give you plaques and pictures and frames and uh, little statuettes of a pilot or a plane or something to do with your military branch of service, and it goes on a shelf somewhere. And you look back at it and go, all my military career, all my career as a politician or as a federal employee, I got this. And again, I don't want to rain on everybody's parade, but this quote haunts me. If you and I look back on life for the accomplishment, the degree, the marriage, the children, the grandchildren, the homes we built, the vacations we've taken, all those things are important and fine. But the routine tasks and ordinary occasions outweigh those spectacular moments. Now, in his book, Visions of Grandeur, he he talks about and writes about recalibrating your life so that it's more meaningful. And that's here, here and there, it's fine. But it just reminds me, um, this, this world is a vapor. Uh, our life is not our own. It's fleeting. Things change. And as Christians, we must be the kind of men and women that are affected by this. Our foundation and our faith are immovable. Not that we're always going to perform the best or be the best, but in whom you trust is an immovable foundation. Well, let me give a little background on this, on this passage in Colossians chapter 1. I want to look at 21 through 29 this morning. I just want to give you a survey of verses 21 to 27 to set up 28 and 29. But to me... What, what Paul is doing in Colossians is setting up a picture of Jesus Christ that is unsurpassed. 
And he essentially says he existed before time. He was there at the creation of the world. He calls him the firstborn of all creation. That doesn't mean he was the first person ever born. That means he has primacy over all. He has first place over all. He's the firstborn of creation. And he lays out this spectacular picture to the Colossian believers of who this Jesus Christ is. And we get this great picture, and then we get this comparison of what we once were and what we are now, and then we'll look at the last two verses, 28 and 29. So let's go through these. You've got the little outline. We were once hostile, we're now holy. We were once hopeless, now we're hopeful. We were once hidden, and now we are heralded. And I'll walk through each of those. Let me read verses 21 and 22. You can follow along in your Bible or on the screen. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile, alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Just a little Bible study method tool. Whenever you read a phrase, in order to, uh, that's a subjunctive clause. You should underline it in pencil. Learn to look for them, especially in Pauline literature. So that, in order to. Just simplify them and call them purpose clauses. And I'll, I'll explain why that is important as we get there. But it's just a good thing for you to look at when you're reading, especially Pauline literature. Now, he says we were alienated and hostile. Um, according to Paul, there's no such thing as being agnostic. I love how that word has worked its way into technology, or it's worked its way into reviews. Uh, I've, I've become somewhat of an audiophile the past uh, year and change, and it's, it's, a, it's a problem because I spend too much time reading and studying and watching YouTubes about it. But you'll find the phrase, I'm agnostic when it comes to fill in the blank. Maybe if you're a PC or a Mac person and you work in both worlds, you'll say, I'm agnostic to a system. Well, agnosis in Greek means I don't have knowledge. So when a person says agnostic, you can smugly say, you are stupid. You are stupid. You've just told me you're stupid. Well, the word agnostic takes on a meaning the way we use it in our culture. is I'm not willing to take a, a position. I'm not going to be politically incorrect and say black or white. I'm going to say, you know, I don't know, whatever works for you, language. That's not what it meant in the first century nor in biblical Greek. He says you are alienated and hostile in mind. This is not fun language. You're better off to say you're an atheist than to say you're agnostic. I just don't believe in God. Ah, being a negative prefix. Ah, millennial, no millennial. Atheistic, there's no God. Theos is for God. Atheism, no God. Um, it's, hard, it's a hard passage. You were alienated, you were hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. I wrote in my notes uh, yesterday, woke. This is woke theology. You're evil. You were alienated toward God. I'm here to break it to you. Well, I'm not a murderer or a rapist. I haven't robbed banks. I haven't committed a felony. No. The scripture says, apart from Christ, we're alienated and we're evil. The baseline of humanity is all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous. No, not one. That's a theological standard that doesn't change because our culture says otherwise. Don't let the world teach you theology. Um, some people still think they're basically good or humanity's good or getting better. I think I've shared the story with you. When we lived in Virginia, Washington, D.C., they had uh, what they called slug lines, and uh, they had HOV lanes, and you had to have three people or more in a car. And so you bypass the bumper-to-bumper -bumper traffic that if you've lived into L.A. or Chicago's Eisenhower Freeway or anywhere in Atlanta, uh, it'd be nice to have an HOV lane. So what they did in Virginia, brilliantly, all lay lead, was they had slug lines. And you could go to these parking lots, like shopping malls that didn't have any, you know, a far, a far area, and you could park there, and then you would pull up and go, and, and I come in my car, I go two for Pentagon South, two for Pentagon South, two for whatever, and two people jumped in your car. 
And then you got on the HOV and you went 75 miles an hour and everybody else is bumper to bumper going into downtown. It's a brilliant system. And when you come out of DC, there's several places you go, two for, uh, you know, whatever the street was, two for such and such. And you, they jump back in your car and you go home. And you have men and women in uniform and business suits, all walks of life. And we did this often, especially if we're going to the airport. And so I picked up a, a Muslim guy one day and another guy, it's sort of, it's, 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 these rules of the road that you don't like play loud music. You're really not supposed to talk to people. It's sort of weird. I'd ignored all those rules. <laughs> They're in my car, you know, they don't have to talk back to me if they don't want to. And so uh, we get in the car and somehow we were talking, I forget what it was, but um, <laughs> so we got on about the gospel. And I'm talking to this, this Muslim guy, the other guy was pretty quiet. And uh, he, I said, well, what do you think is the problem, uh, the solution to our problem? And he was all education, education, education. I go, we're the most educated people on the planet, and the thing's still falling apart. And he says, well, what do you think? Ha-ha, tee up, softball, <laughs> watermelon. So I tell him my story, and I tell him about the gospel, that I trusted in Christ and Christ alone. And, uh, and I said, I, and I used the phrase, I was a sinful, evil person before I knew Jesus Christ. And he says, oh, you're too hard on yourself. You're too hard on yourself. That's a, that, that's a civil conversation between a nomenclature, a language that's out there. Scripture doesn't give you that option. I don't mean we run around telling people you're evil and you're afflicted and you're going to hell. That's not very effective. <laughs> I do think there's times to say we are sinful people in a broken world. We're all sinners. We all fall short. Paul, to the Colossian believer, says, you were once hostile. You weren't indifferent. You weren't agnostic. You were hostile toward God. That's your condition. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, um, I'm not worried about being kind or unkind. Scripture says before we know Christ, we're alienated, we commit evil, and we're hostile toward God because we're living to our own rules, our own codes, our own way of life, and they're all inconsistent. The one consistency everyone in this room has is that we're consistently inconsistent. Whether it's diet, whether it's viewpoints, whether it's literature, whether it's time spent, we're consistently inconsistent in what we choose. Um, if you don't believe that people are evil and wicked, uh, just look at the news tonight for about 10 minutes. Um, you may have seen this, these two police officers that, uh, in McAllen, Texas that were killed. Domestic, a domestic call, they go knock on the door, a 23-year-old kid kills him, and then kills himself. How do you explain that if you don't think there's evil in the world? And, you know, the one area I give the media high marks for is they don't talk about the perp like they used to. Now, some will, but there's sort of an unspoken rule. You don't celebrate this person because you turn them into, you know, some hero or some kind of weird twisted thing. And all they said was he was a 23-year-old man with a long rap sheet. This wasn't his first brush with the law. Why in the world would a 23-year-old at the knock on the door kill two police officers? Because the heart of man is evil. It doesn't mean you or I would do that. It means we're capable of it. Look again at verse 22. He has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless. His job on Calvary was to reconcile fallen sinful mankind. The purpose clause in order to reconcile you, to present you holy and blameless and beyond reproach or approach, some of your Bibles might say. Um, this idea of holy or blameless, two words, they're, they're religious words, they mean everything, therefore they mean nothing. Holy means to set something apart for a specific use. To set something apart for a specific use. If you've heard me teach over the years, I use the same illustration every time. It's a tureen. You know what a tureen is? It's a fancy word for a gravy bowl. And if you were to come to our house, you would see uh, my grandmother, maternal grandmother's china that I was given. And I was in college before I was married. Thankfully, Cindy liked the pattern, uh, so we didn't have to get china. Who gets china today when they get married? Anybody get china? You get one piece, right? So, um, but we had this dogwood pattern china with a gold edging, and she loved it. It's very old looking, and some of the gold edging has come off. 
and some of it's chipped. It seems like all the cups and all the saucers are chipped. And yes, it's thundering, get over it. Uh, all, all the saucers are chipped, all the cups, but the tureen is perfect. Why? So rarely used. It was set apart. It was set apart for a specific thing, not for kids to make mud pies in or play a, a tea time with. The tureen, when we used to have a china cabinet, was in the middle of the cabinet because it was the most beautiful part and, and, of course, the teapot and other things were also beautiful. But it was the terrain that was set apart for one thing, Thanksgiving. Yeah. When you trust Christ, you become holy, not by what you do, but by who you know. And Christ sets you apart as holy. You're, you're in the world. You're, you may have some chips and dings and the gold edging may have come off, but you're set apart for him. For a purpose. That's what Paul is saying. Blameless is without blemish. I love this word. It's used in Ephesians 5.27 when it says that the church, which is the bride of Christ, is to be presented to Jesus without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, holy and blameless before him. You know why the bride wears a nice, white, beautiful dress? From Ephesians chapter 5 and Revelation 22. The picture of the bride of Christ, no spot, no wrinkle, Pure white. That was the, this, this virginal notion of a white dress. No, there's no how to have a Western wedding. It's the Bible. The Bible says she was to present the church, which is the bride, to Christ blameless. So we have these two words, holy and blameless. And then above, beyond reproach means without fault. Um, some of us perhaps like politics. Um, I do. I, I've, I've been weaning myself off from the last uh, two years significantly, but certain things I still follow because I'm just curious how it's going to work out. Because when a reputation is under attack and destroyed, I often wonder how a person goes on living. And uh, there's one person whose name I won't name, some of you will probably guess, that's fine, but whose reputation has been destroyed, and now that seems pretty clear that he didn't do anything wrong. He can't ever get that reputation back. And when you're falsely accused, when your reputation is destroyed, you need reconciliation. And it rarely happens in the world, but it happens in Scripture. And it happens when you're standing before God. Because you and I were once, we, we were hostile and now we're holy. Now we're set apart. We're unblemished. We're, we're set over here not to be a centerpiece in a china cabinet, to be used for his glory and his purpose to demonstrate your life matters. It's not a ponderous heap of tedious, boring events. Your life matters. And for 40 years of trying to teach this, I will tell you, Christians do not understand this concept. Your life matters to Christ. What you do with it, how you live, how you spend your money, how you work on your marriage, how you parent your kids, how you spoil your grandkids, how you show up for work, what you do on the job, it matters. It's far more important than most people realize, and that's the mundane routine of life that gets in the way. One of the things I've been working on, and in God's great kindness, I've seen some improvement, is being able to smile at the future. Not to be so maudlin and Eeyore. I mean, I'm Eeyore to the core. <laughs> oh, it's only my birthday. Nobody gave me anything but a dumb balloon or an empty bowl, you know? <laughs> no, your life matters. I don't understand how he uses me. I would submit you probably don't understand how he uses you. A book I'll never write would be entitled Imperceptible Influence. You have no idea how you're influencing people around you by the fact that you're kind, that you're loving, that you're a good husband, a good wife, a good mom, a good dad, a good worker, that you go a little early, you pick up a broom when you're not asked, let me help. We've all been in labor staff team meetings, and there's always the complainers and the whiners. And then there's the people that say, well, I don't know, but I'll help. I'll come in a little early. I'll step into that. Who's going to get people's attention? Who's going to get their affection? Who's going to probably do well in life and work? The person that says, I'll help. It's the same. It's true, it's true in life. 
You want to be a nice, kind person that loves people the way Christ does, not a curmudgeonial person that is my nature. Reconciliation is the only medicine for a guilty conscience. And all of us harbor what ifs, if then, oh goodness, if you take me back before I came to Christ in my uh, junior high years, if they show that movie in heaven, I'm going to curl up in a fetal ball. I do not want anybody to know what I did in junior high before I came to Christ. There are parts of all of our lives we wish we could erase, but reconciliation frees us from a guilty conscience. Your reputation isn't restored to what it was before you sinned. Your reputation is new in Christ. In order that, look at that, in order to present you, not to the world, to him. Holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Once hostile, now holy. Secondly, verse 23, once hopeless, now we're hopeful. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established. That sounds a little bit like a benchmark, doesn't it? Firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Now, this idea of continuing the faith, for those of you who are Bible students, uh, that phrase jumps off the page when you read it. Go, what does it mean to continue in the faith? The Reformers grappled with this under the P and tulip as perseverance of the saints. And if you want, go back to the original readings of Luther, Melanchthon, Zwingli, Calvin, what they taught about it is not what's taught today. What's taught today is if you're really a Christian, you'll, be, you'll persevere to the end. What Scripture teaches and what the Reformers taught was Christ perseveres in you to the end. Otherwise, it's a works-based salvation. Otherwise, it's I have to continue. Now, this double-edged because we have to acknowledge we need to be faithful. I've shared many times, when you come to Christ, when you put your trust in Christ and Christ alone, that's a point in time. And by the way, that's a great benchmark if you don't have a date in your Bible, that's a good benchmark. On, you know, when I was in 1971, I was 15 years old, I came to Christ. I walked out, prayed to prayer. I understood what it meant. That's a benchmark I go back to. I believed in Christ, and that's how I know I'm saved. Not because of what I did, what he did for me. I put my trust in him to do for me what I cannot do for myself. That's a good benchmark. But when I read continuing the faith, what does that mean? Firmly established and steadfast i got to do my part is how our brain tends to run. There is faithful living, right? So, for example, if a man, because this is an easy illustration to use because I'm a man, if a man is a womanizer and a philanderer and runs around and he has multiple affairs and he divorces his wife and is known as a man of uh, uh, loose morals in town, what will Christians often say? Well, He's really not Christian. He probably didn't walk down and pray the prayer the right way. And there's a part of me that gets that type of description. But there's also a part of me that says he could be living in sin. And callous to his behavior and callous to the scripture and far away from God. And I'm not ready to run to say he's not a Christian. And, and the Christian community tends to be divided in this category. If they make a, a poor choice or a series of poor choices, will they never truly embrace the gospel? That is a viable possibility. It is possible that they didn't really trust Christ. It's possible they said the language is a child and didn't mean it. This is why, I love my Baptist friends, don't hear me wrong, this is why I couldn't be a Baptist. Because every time they made a good sermon, I'd walk the aisle again. Uh, maybe I didn't do it right. Maybe I need to do it uh, one more time. I have a Baptist friend that's been immersed three times because he's just not sure he did it right. And I would be the same way because I have a, have a guilty conscience. Uh, so I would worry about those things. I, can't, I have to go back to something that I know that I know that I know that I know. So this digression here is there's a point in time faith when you trust Christ, but we're also to live faithfully. And to me, the measure or the pulse is if a person has guilt, if a person has shame, if a person removes him or herself from all Christians, it makes sense. Because if they choose to live a licentious life, 
then you have to move away from that. It's like you're probably not in the word and in prayer on a daily basis if you're living in sin. I mean, it's just, this is common sense stuff. But continuing the faith, I'm digressing a long way on this because when I read this, I go, what does that mean, continuing the faith? If you indeed continue the faith, firmly established and steadfast, don't miss what he's saying. I'm established on a benchmark of what God's done. I'm believing that. Luther said when the temptations came, he would call them a liar and say, you're calling Jesus a liar. And when he said he preached the gospel to himself, that's what he meant. He went back to what did I believe? What did God say? What did Christ say? That's what I'm trusting in, not my own efforts. What a terrible thing that you and I would trust in our own efforts. Uh, Reconciliation, again, is, is a big word in this passage. The idea is that we were once this certain way. We were once hopeless. Now we're hopeful. Um, and, and again, it's a side sidebar. Um, a lot of us have trouble in life. A lot of us pray that God will heal us or help us. Um, Lord knows how many times I've asked him to relieve me of my chronic back pain, and it never happened. I mean, it's gotten better over the years. Don't, don't, don't feel sorry for me. But one of the things that I've, I've preached to myself and I've shared with other people is don't merely ask, ask God for a miracle. Ask him for an immovable faith. If you get a miracle, you're going to need another one, and another one, and another one. And we have bad memories and high expectations. Another one, another one, another one, another one. But if I have an immovable faith, it doesn't matter what happens. I'm trusting in him. I'm trusting in his word, not my experience. My experience is a terrible, terrible theology. Trusting the word, trusting him, trusting him at his word. I want an immovable faith in the middle of things. Once hostile, now holy. Once hopeless, now hopeful. And then third, once hidden, now heralded, and I'll explain what I mean by that. Verse 24. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church I was made a minister. Let me just pause there. When Paul says minister, it's, either the, it's the word deacon 99 times out of 100. And it means servant. So when you think of a minister being a person that wears funny clothes, or he's a pastor, a minister, or she's a pastor, a minister, uh, what the word means is a servant. So Paul is saying, I'm a servant according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but now has been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And we proclaim him, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom, that we may present every man complete in Christ, and for this purpose, there's that clause again, this purpose clause. For this purpose, I also, also I labor, striving according to his power, which works mightily within me. Paul's not saying Christ was insufficient in his suffering. Again, we go back to verse 24. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and the idea of what is lacking in Christ's affliction. That's a real head scratcher. That's a real head scratcher. What's he saying there? Were Jesus' afflictions insufficient? Was his suffering insufficient? Of course not. So what is he saying? We have to go back to Paul's story a bit. In chapter 9 of the so-called road to Damascus, uh, you know the story perhaps too, too well, but Saul is persecuting the church of Jesus Christ. He's imprisoning Jewish Christians, taking them back to Jerusalem and putting them in jail. He's got, he, we might say he has search and seizure and warrants. And he's on the road arresting Christians with the authority of the Pharisees and taking them, quote, to jail. And this is where, of course, he's struck blind and he hears the voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he's three days blind, remember? And then Ananias the seer is, I love the story, he's tapped on the shoulder and, uh, and God tells uh, Ananias, you're going to go to him. And he, he goes, whoa, whoa, it's a great, it's a great story. He goes, have you heard about this guy? 
You want me to go? Have you heard? Well, Lord, let me, let me fill you in on the details in case you missed the headlines. He's arresting and persecuting Christians, and you want me to go to him? And it's a very forceful go. And then it's a chilling statement. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. How about that for a call? You get to be an apostle of the Gentiles, and you're going to suffer like you've never suffered before for my name's sake. You want to go to college and take a degree in suffering and pain and affliction or wealth and prosperity? It's not a trick question. It's not a trick question. I maintain no one ever grows in the midst of prosperity and ease. The only time we grow is in affliction. The only time we grow is when the pain takes control, emotionally, physically, whatever, and you can't fix it, and then you what? You ask for help. You turn to God. The corollary of this is dangerous. If you study your life and look at your miserable seasons, your unhappy seasons, your lack of contentment seasons, your lack of joy seasons, mark it down. The props don't work anymore. What's going on? I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Interesting part of the Bible that it's hard for people, you know, people often say things like, well, you know, God, I mean, the Old Testament, they killed people. They were, they were, they committed genocide. And, and, you know, on the surface, I can certainly see that argument. But what people don't understand is if you persecute God's people, you're persecuting God. If you persecute his chosen people, you're, you're shaking your fist at Yahweh. And so in the Old Testament, when these, these pervasive commands came about go in and destroy these people groups, don't leave anything alive, it wasn't genocide. It was he knew that those people were beyond the point of coming to believe in Yahweh Elohim. They had their own systems, and as long as they existed, they were going to be an irritation and a distraction to the Jew. Now, fortunately, the Jew and Gentile are reconciled. That battle was going to live forever. And that's why the Middle Eastern people groups so outnumber the little Jewish nation called Israel. It's just numerically, you can't, there's no other way to explain it. Well, in this persecution, in this affliction, um, Philippians 3.10, Paul's writing. In Philippians, in Pauline literature, Philippians is, is his happy face letter. He's happy writing Philippians. Not so much Corinthians. Not so much Colossians, somewhat with Galatians, but he gets a little irritated. Here he's happy when he writes Philippians. And he says in chapter 3, verse 10, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Who can say something like that? Because he understood Ananias' words from God, you're going to suffer for Christ's sake. So Paul had an exquisite ministry of going to Gentiles, not to Jews, to the throwaway, hated people groups to take the gospel beyond Jerusalem. And he implements this missionary journey thing we talk about. And he goes out to the unlovables, the people that were idolaters, that were immoral, on and on and on. And he takes the gospel to them. And he's able to tell the Philippian believers, I, the word enjoy isn't there, but for our language, I enjoy the fellowship of his sufferings. Because what I suffer compared to what Christ suffered cannot be measured. Even in suffering, Paul chose joy. This is perhaps one of the hardest lessons for any Christian. And again, as a pastor in a, in a personal, in my own life and in my family's life, watching people suffer is hard. You want to end their suffering. If you've not been around someone who's terminally ill and in chronic pain, you don't understand the idea of you know, a good death, of letting a person commit assisted suicide. It's abhorrent to me because it's a life is in the image of God. And you can't do that. I understand why you want to. Because when you see someone suffer that much pain, that much disability, maybe they're old, old as me, and maybe they're old. Well, of course they need to die, right? Um, no. Suffering, you have an opportunity to choose joy. Does that mean you're happy about it? No. Does that mean you like being in pain? Of course not. But you choose, joy is not happiness. Joy is a choice we make theologically 
to smile at the future and to trust Christ. I have joy in, listen, we're all broken, limping people. We all have jacked up lives. We all have problems we wish would go away. And if you don't have them, they're in your family, right? I mean, you may be fine and dandy and perfect, but tell me, there's some family members that not so much. We all have those folks, right? And, and your heart breaks for them. Uh, do you choose joy even in suffering? That's a big lesson. Vaughn writes, you may occasionally hear the clang of a Roman chain, talking about Paul, but you never hear a groan from the brave prisoner. I write these. Look with what large letters I write this. And a theory in pencil, can't prove it, is that he had an amanuensis who was writing his, some of his prison epistles, and at the end he picks up a scribe and he puts Paul Look with what large letters I'm writing you. Maybe that's what he means, but he doesn't complain. He doesn't whine. He doesn't moan. The underlying factor of Paul's life was suffering. It was God's ordained purpose. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Colossians 1.24, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. For your sake. He got Christology. When Jesus is crucified, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. The weight of the sin of the world, his father's separation, all that falls upon the Savior as he gives up his life. And that suffering becomes Paul's model and one for you and me. Uh, Paul's motivation is very clear in verses 25 to 27. He made him a minister. Again, that's the same word for deacon. He saw this as a stewardship. Uh, stewardship is a word, again, that's kind of fallen off favor. Stewardship is such an important New Testament term because you're managing what you don't own. You're managing what is not yours. God gave us a life. It's not yours. God gave you a job that gives you a paycheck. It's not yours. God gave you a family. It's not yours. A steward takes care of something that's not his or hers. And interestingly, a steward also knows a lot about the subject that he or she is over. So this idea that Paul is a minister as the stewardship that God had given him to be a benefit to others. And, and just as a lesson I had written in the margin of my Bible years ago when I stumbled across this was, Michael, are you using the stuff God gave you? And I mean stuff in a broad, a broad way. The money, the ability, the, the gifting, whatever you want to call it. Are you using the stuff God gave you as a stewardship for him? You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. God knows we didn't deserve it, right? Most of us in this room have been blessed beyond our effectiveness. So how do you use what you got? Paul's motivation is clear, verse 28 and 29. This all comes together now. We proclaim him. Read it with me. We proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose I also I labor, striving according to his power which works mightily within me. Let's take this apart a little bit. Three times, every man, every man, every man. Notice the three primary verbs, proclaim, admonish, teach. Proclaim, please, please see this. What is he proclaiming? Him, Christ. He's not proclaiming a vision. He's not proclaiming a mission. He's not proclaiming some new idea. He's proclaiming the person and work of Jesus Christ. Someone asked me in recent weeks, but you always say the person and work of Christ. Because if, if you just take the words of Jesus at surface value, you can believe them or not. If you see what he did along with his words. That's why I often say thank you for your words and your works. It's what Jesus accomplished. After all, if he didn't conquer death and come back from the grave, he's just a philosopher. He's not who he said he was. So this idea of proclaiming Christ, it's the word kataangelion in Greek. And you know the word angelion as a messenger, like angel, a derivative, sounds a little bit like angel. We've talked about transliteration versus translation. We translate a word like mathetes as disciples. We transliterate baptismo to baptize. 
There's no word in the English language, so we do a letter-for-letter letter sounds like. In Hebrew, gamal is a word for camel. I mean, you look at the animal, there's no word for it. Let's use the Hebrew word. So gamal is transliterated camel. Katangelion, the angelion, angelion is the gospel. That's where we get the word evangelistic or evangel, euangelion. EU is what in Greek? Good. A eulogy, a euphemism, a euphonium. It's a good sound. It's a good word, a good turn of a phrase. So when we read katangelion, a very important New Testament term, he's saying, I am proclaiming, I am heralding, I am talking about him. The next word is... Um, Admonish, and this is the least fun word in this passage. There's no way around it. It's correcting those who are wrong. It's warning. Some of you might have grown up around what was called nuthetic counseling. There's still some nuthetic counselors out there that call themselves Christian and call themselves nuthetic. And not to oversimplify it, but they only use the Bible, and you're going to memorize verses, and you're going to study passages, all of which is important and good. I got no problem with that. But they, they would overcompensate in the sense that they won't even talk about maybe some personality issues or home background. It's nuthet, pure nuthetic counseling. I'm not being a fair representative of it. I'm giving you a high view of it. The word nuthetic here is the idea of, I'm going to tell you what's wrong. And this is what you need to do. Uh, most of us probably had a father that admonished us. My dad had a phrase that uh, I... I, you know, my dad had all these sayings that drove me nuts as a boy. And it was only natural and normal when I had children that I gifted them to my children. <laughs> and one of them was, do it now or sooner, boy. You know, so if you had to do your chores on Saturday and you were sleeping or watching car, do it now or sooner, boy. I never knew what sooner was, but that's just what he said. Um, Turn the light off when you leave the room. Hold the light, boy. All these things he said to me. Uh, I won't bore you any more of them, but, but those were admonishments. And if I heard my full name from my father, I was in trouble. There was probably a belt at the end of that sentence. And um, I survived being spanked. So that's another story. Uh, admonish is to advise someone of the wrong of their consequences. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, it's a rebuke of wrong choices. 1 Corinthians 4, 14, it's advising of wrong choices. 1 Thess 5, 12, you teach proper behavior. Let me explain this to you. If you do this, these are the consequences, and I'm not going to mince any words. That's admonishment. So we're teaching, uh, we're heralding, proclaiming Christ. We're admonishing in behavior. And third, we're teaching. And this is a very familiar word, didaske or didaskalantes. Uh, didactic teaching, where we get it from, line by line. People often say Paul was a didactic writer because he has principles and outlines that you can follow and orchestrate. Um, the word, however, is lost again on the English mind. Uh, teaching is twofold. There's the person that has the knowledge and the ability teaching a student who must receive that knowledge and ability. I have no musical ability in my body. I played the clarinet in third grade, and I'm not, I had this memory they asked me not to come back, but I can't prove it, um, but I just didn't have it. Uh, I wasn't musically oriented or wired. Jesse, uh, Jesse and Hannah, our two older daughters, took music lessons. I mean, since they were like two, I was paying for piano lessons and voice lessons and drums and violin and God knows what else, and um, I was, we were happy to do it. Uh, Sing, sing, you know. Uh, Hannah came to Belmont her first semester to be a vocal major, and then she changed her mind. After all those years of, um, whoa, 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 think what you're thinking. It's fine. Uh, and, and Hannah was more of the classically trained person, and Jesse was more of the had the ear and could pick it up. And to watch two different people have an aptitude and an ability, someone had to have the ability to teach Jesse or Hannah to sing or play, but the student had to be receptive and have the ability to learn. I shared with you probably many times I took one course in business statistics in college and thought for sure I wasn't saved. I mean, I worked harder on that, had a Christian professor, and business statistics and me did not get along. 
And I would go to my professor. He was a kind, kind Christian man, and he would tutor me, and I would be almost in tears trying to understand ANOVA curves and mu curves. And I mean, who cares about that stuff? I'm glad some of you all do. It, my brain did not understand statistics. I'll never forget him patting me on the shoulder when he, on a chalkboard in his class saying, Michael, not everyone understands statistics. Really? Really? There are some people that understand this and like this stuff. The teacher had the information. The student, Michael, did not have the ability to integrate that and think that way, understand that way. And we're all that way. When it comes to teaching about Jesus Christ, you got to know what you're teaching. But every man, every man, every man can learn because we were made in God's image. You were born, let's say, with a musical aptitude. You were born with a mathematical aptitude. You were born with a Jesus Christ aptitude. So what he's saying is we're teaching everyone about the person and work of Christ. It's a beautiful account. Um, When I go to a doctor, I want that doctor to know more than me. I want them to know as much as possible. I want them to be an academic. I don't want them to rest on their laurels. Uh, When you build a home, you want the architect or the engineer to know what they're doing. And if you've ever bought a home that was uh, maybe early on in a builder's experience, um, you know why. Uh, There are some things about a home you go, man, these people were brilliant when they designed this. I was like, talk about a stub toe. This this hallway was too narrow. Why did they put the washer and dryer over the master bedroom? You know what I mean? There's just certain things you learn over time, right? Experience is a teacher got to have the ability, and then the person being taught must have the aptitude. I like the expression from Proverbs 8. I, I sewed this together. Knowledge plus understanding equals wisdom. Knowledge plus understanding equals wisdom. They're different things. We've all had a professor that was brilliant and boring. He or she knew their subject inside and out. They put you to sleep in the first six minutes of lecture. They couldn't communicate it well. We've all had relational teachers that had their tennis you know, bag and their cup of coffee and they're sitting there swinging their feet and they're cool and hip, but they don't really know the subject. Understanding the way the Bible teaches this knowledge is that, let's say, brilliant college professor. Understanding is the relational component of it, how we apply it. You take knowledge and understanding together, now you have wisdom. And that's the objective. And that's why he says, with all wisdom. So we're teaching every man. Why? Because people learn differently. People learn. If you've had more than one child, you learn quickly. They learn differently. What worked on the first doesn't work on the second, work on the third, work on the fourth. Right, you all know that. Because that's why the aptitude is so important. What information do we have about Christ, and how do we teach this to our children? That's why the Bible is such a wonderful piece of literature. Because there's stories, and there's didactic information. There's poetry, if you like psalms and music, that are easy to put together. There are great biographies, if you like the lives of people. And there's all kinds of spectacular supernatural events for those that like that kind of stuff. It's a wonderful piece of literature, no matter what your learning style would be. Paul says we do this with all wisdom. What's the objective? That he will present us complete in Christ. If you have a King James, it says perfect. In fact, the number, I surveyed about 10 translations because I was curious how they rendered this word. It's a bit complicated to render. And perfect is still used in some Bibles, perfect in Christ. And there's an argument for that. A better word for, for, our, for our mind is mature. I want to produce a person with the knowledge and ability we have from Christ's word, Christ's work. We want to transfer that so someone else is also a maturing person that they could teach somebody that they could explain it to somebody else, that they would grow in their faith. After all, you're sitting in a room, think of the history, think of the theological genealogy of how you got where you are. That blows my mind. Think about the people before us, going back to the first century, who knew Christ, who took this discipleship thing seriously, who taught others about Jesus Christ, who transferred it on, as Paul told Timothy, and trust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That's still going on. Hadn't stopped. That blows my mind. Well, the goal is to be 
complete or mature in Christ. And then his motivation comes out in verse 29. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which works mightily within me. Three terms quickly, labor, strive, and work. Labor is wearisome total, uh, to- toil. You think of Paul as a tent maker. The word striving is one of my top 25 favorite words in Greek. It's agonizomai, agonizomai, the word agonize. That's another one we didn't quite have the language for, so we kind of transliterated it. And th- the best way to explain agonizing labor, if you haven't bailed hay, you need to do it once in your lifetime just to say you did it. I'm not talking about machine bales. I'm talking about the 75-pound ones that are tied up with string or bale wire, and you throw it in the back of a truck or a trailer, and then the trailer goes to the, to the barn, and then you have to stack it up. If you need to go do that one time in your life. All your grandchildren should go do it one time in their life. Make them do it, because they'll now know what agonizing labor is. That first 20 bales, no problem, 75 pounds. By the end of the day, they weigh 375 pounds apiece. They're so heavy. You're dragging them up your, your, your legs. You're barely getting them. The top of the hay pile is doing this number because you aren't stacking them. It's agonizing labor. Paul says, I labor, striving. Don't miss this. According to his power, which works mightily within me. Not in your flesh. Not in your flesh. I was a pastor in Northern Virginia for I don't know how many years. I'm probably in my mid-40s. I had a friend on staff. Some of you know Jack Elwood. And Jack came to me one time. He was a navigator, navigator. And he came to me one time and he says, Michael, you can't make your flesh better. The way he said it, the context he said it was like I had never heard this. You cannot make your flesh better. Paul even says bodily discipline profits a little. And it does, a little. No doubt about it. But godliness is profitable for all things. The apostle, his motivation in this story, in his passage is, we proclaim, we admonish, we teach. Every man, every man, the best we can, all wisdom. We work hard at it. We strive according to Christ's power. Any of you ever used a floor maintainer, a, a buffer, an industrial buffer? That's another thing you should all use once in your life. And uh, when I worked at a photo lab when I, in high school, um, we had these linoleum floors, and I had, had to be clean once in a while, and you buffed them afterwards, and they had these different um, abrasives you'd put, like, I forget what they're called, but you changed them out. You squirt the stuff in you. Well, they had these two little uh, bales on either side of the handles. These things are super heavy. I mean, they probably weigh, what, Wayne, 200 pounds, 150, 200 pounds? They're heavy. And that's why they work, because they're putting weight on the floor. And uh, if you try to manhandle that, you'll put a hole in the wall. You cannot control a floor maintainer. If you don't know what you're doing and you squeeze the bale, it'll go boom in the side of the wall that fast. And once you learn how to do it, you literally can do it with two fingers. You let the machine do the work. You try to manhandle a floor maintainer, you're going to dent trim and walls and cords and probably hurt yourself and others. When we were in Virginia, we had neighbors, we would rent a core aerator, and I'm a big one for your yard. And, um, and I would get it, and I had an Air Force colonel across the street who was a bodybuilder. He looked like Schwarzenegger. He was huge. And I had a, a, a scientist that lived next door to me who was a little, uh, a little uh, ectomorphic guy, a little skinny guy with you know, no muscles on his body. And um, another guy down the street. We rented this big thing. It takes two people to get it out of the truck, bring it home, and a uh, big old gas-powered thing. And it's the same way. It's got a bale on it. And that thing will go through a fence if you don't drop the bale, it will just keep going. And so I'm explaining it to these men who are all smarter than me. And they're, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, tell, I know they're not paying attention. And I go, let me show you how you do this. And it's like a kid with a new toy. I can do it. And let me show you, then you can have it. And with two fingers, you can run that thing. When you get about that far to the fence, you let it go. And then you lean it and turn it back on the wheels. And you, you do not try in your own strength to move that machine. You cannot do it, nor can you stop it. You have to let go of the bale. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. So my neighbor and I watched this Air Force bodybuilder just destroy his yard because he's manhandling it. And so I'm telling my scientist neighbor, now see what he's doing wrong? I don't mean to be unkind, but let the machine do it. And the first thing this guy does, takes it down the hill and through his fence. <laughs> through his fence. And he's holding on to it. Like a rat. Let go of the bail. Let go of the bail. That's working in your own strength. That's working in your own strength. And this is a light bulb. You proclaim, you admonish, you teach with all wisdom for the purpose so that we're going to labor and strive so that in the strength of Christ we can accomplish this. This is hard to get, this is hard. It's hard to think about because this is not how we work in life. We figure if you get up early, you stay late, you do a little more effort, you work out, you increase your weight in the weight room, you increase your repetitions, you're going to get stronger and better. That's how life works in the physical body. And that's why Paul says it profits a little. But godliness is different. Godliness is different. Read it with me again. We proclaim him, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom, it's a benchmark for me. I've been signing my letters with Colossians 1, 20, 29 for years. For years. This is Paul's great commission. Paul has distilled what he's learned from Christ and his sufferings to boot, and he's explaining this is what we're about. Proclaiming, admonishing, teaching with all wisdom. Why? To present people mature in Christ. It's not human strength. It's superhuman. It's someone else using you and me, and we're cooperating with the floor maintainer. We're cooperating with the power and the strength of that core aerator because you cannot manhandle it. You are not strong enough. When Cindy and I lived in Texas, we uh, had a dear, dear friend. We kept our friendship for years. She'd been through about 11 or 12 major surgeries. And uh, we were in, in Virginia, um, had moved on from Texas, and she was dying and wanted me to officiate her funeral. And so Cindy and I flew back to do her funeral. And uh, she was a, a Texas gal, uh, had this gigantic, perfect smile. She was the hostess with the mostess. When she walked into a room, the room lit up. She loved people uh, for Christ like no one I ever knew. And um, she had this, and you have to, those of you from Texas will understand this, but she had this like gaudy, and I can say this because she's in heaven now, this gaudy gold uh, piece of jewelry with crushed diamonds in it that was about that big that said joy. And she wore it every day. And I mean, it was so ostentatious you couldn't help but see it. When she would go, if you've been in the hospital and, you know, pre-op, they take your wedding ring, everything away. She would hang on to that joy pin on her hospital gown until they walked her down the hall and her husband would take it away. She would not let them take it off. And uh, that was her motto in life was joy. And she would say to me, Michael, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And she's going through cancer and chemo and surgeries. She had the most unusual cascade of events with her cancer and I still remember going to see her husband and uh at, at a hospital in Dallas and I'm I could I was young enough to be their son and she's asking me dead serious question her husband's there she's in the hospital bed she goes Michael when do you stop having these surgeries I know where I'm going why, why should Harold spend all this money on me when do you stop how would you answer that question? And I pointed to her pen. You're the one taught me. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. See, the Christian life was not meant to be burdensome. And thank goodness he didn't tell you, like he told Paul, I'm going to show you how much you're going to suffer for my name's sake. Most of us have had a pretty easy street. Some have been through hard times. All of us will go through hard times. Not like the martyrs did. Not like Paul did. When you and I die, the moment we die, we're going to be present with a king. You're not going to, you're not going to miss anything back home. 
You're not going to worry about your children, your grandchildren, your mortgage, your garden. It's not going to matter. But we live like this is all that matters. I do. Can I hear an amen? I do. It's so hard not to be horizontally focused. Paul's commission to the Colossians and to you and me, it's about the personal work of Jesus Christ. Can you use everything in your arsenal that he's given you just to be the man or the woman that Christ wants you to be in the sphere of influence where you are and let him work in you? It's a liberating concept if you understand this. As for me and my house, commitment to God, character, community. Paul's great commission, we proclaim him. Say it with me one more time. Admonishing every man. Read it with me. Admonishing every man. Teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, agonizomai, according to his power, which works mightily within me. It's perhaps the most pathetic thing in life is to see an immature adult. We, we abide children, we abide preteens. By the time they get teenagers, we're irritated because we want them to be older than they really are. And their brains are yet forming. And they are snarky and complicated to be around. And as they grow out and through that and become young adults, uh, if, you, know, you know, I've said it many times before, grandchildren are God's reward for not killing your teenager. And when they get older and you become friends with your adult children, there's no greater thing in life. And I love John's gospel. There's no greater joy than when my children walk in truth. There's no greater joy in life when we help other people we proclaim, we admonish, we teach with all wisdom so that they'll know Christ and they'll grow in Him. Michaelisley in Context is fully funded by our listeners. If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation to support our ministry? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is edited, mixed, and mastered by Tim Hull, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Chad Cates and Tycho.